Hey everybody, welcome to ClickBang. As many of you know, on June 22nd, Harvey Wishtart, my father, my best friend, and my hero, passed away. I thank you all so much. There's been an outpouring of support and love from all of you, and I really appreciate that. I plan to do a full tribute to my father, who was a frequent guest on my show, at a later date. I'm just not ready for that yet. He deserves it, and it's coming. And once again, thanks to all of you. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about Brexit and the future of the European Union and how there's going to be a very wicked game of chess that's going to be played over the next few years. I also have some comments to make regarding the announcement today from the FBI director, James Comey, that, they FBI, that the FBI recommends no charges be pursued against Hillary Clinton. Uh, for those of you that might have been living under a rock or just reading headlines, you might not understand what exactly happened. There was a, uh, there was a, a referendum in the United Kingdom where the people got to vote whether or not they favored the United Kingdom leaving the European Union. The vote was very close, but by a narrow margin, the people of the United Kingdom voted to leave. It should be noted that this referendum had a 72% turnout in the United Kingdom. In terms of total votes cast, as well as a percentage of the entire population, this issue was voted on more than anything else in the history of the UK. For example, just to give you some context, results in United States presidential elections have not hit 60% in over half a century. The last time the United States population voted at a similar percentage as the Brexit referendum was in the late 1800s. Uh, just a quick side note. While I was researching these numbers, I found that there was a massive drop in the percentage of the eligible population of voters who actually exercised their right to vote after the passage of the 19th Amendment, which guaranteed women's right to vote in all American elections. To put that into real numbers, before women's suffrage, it was not uncommon to have over 70% of eligible voters casting their votes in a presidential election. After women's suffrage, that number dropped to below 50% and slowly climbed to about 60% over the next four decades. I'm not quite sure what to make of those numbers, but make of them what you will. Back to Brexit. While the results were very close, the margin for leave was still well over an excess of a million votes. Everything that I have said suggests that a huge percentage of the UK population turned out to vote. And that is true save for one demographic. That would be the millennials. Voters aged 18 to 24 years of age didn't show up. Only 36% of voters aged 18 to 24 voted. While they did vote to remain in the EU, nearly a supermajority of millennials simply couldn't be bothered to get out and vote. It's no surprise that now these are the people who are making the most stink about the results of the election. You had your chance. And maybe if near 70% of you came out to vote, maybe the vote would have been different. You had a chance at direct democracy, something that we here in America rarely have in most states. You squandered this opportunity. And now you resort to temper tantrums. What exactly is it that you're protesting democracy. Once again, 
posting on Facebook and Twitter doesn't count as voting. You had your chance, you didn't vote, and you lost. But enough about the millennials. They are obviously irrelevant anyway since they don't vote. So what does this mean for the future of Europe and the future of the UK? Uh, the future of the EU is much more uncertain, but the future of the UK, I think, is quite bright because of their decision to leave. They once again will have control over their country and not a nebulous block of non-elected oligarchs in Brussels who make decisions for them with no accountability and no democracy behind what they do. Many people have resorted to calling the people who voted to leave, that is the majority of the population of the UK, as old racists. Uh, this is very unfair, and it is a tactic that I don't mind to see them using because every day just saying racist, sexist, homophobic carries less and less weight. Overwhelmingly, when people use this tactic, it is without merit or fact. This is such an example. Immigration was an important topic in this debate. Europe has seen all too well, and as well as the United Kingdom, what happens when you have rapid immigration from disparate societies and cultures coming into your country. I covered this on the last show that I did. For more detail, you can listen to that. The UK, like I said, has been seeing this themselves. And those policies of controlling their own border were in many ways no longer controlled by them. Now, after they actually formally do leave the, U the EU, they will finally have control of their own borders again and make whatever immigration decisions they deem best for their country. Staying in the EU would almost surely eradicate this right over time. Now they will, well, not immediately, but they will soon get it back. The right for a nation to be able to control their own borders is crucial for the preservation of their culture. Just to give an analogy, would you, as an American citizen, if you are one, be comfortable with the decisions being made regarding the U.S. borders be made by Canada, Mexico, and the rest of Central America? Of course not. The British electorate agrees with you. All of this is, and all of what I'm about to say, is contingent, is contingent upon the United Kingdom actually leaving the European Union. This is far from certain. Keep in mind, referendums like this have happened in the past in other countries, and the EU does not like it when they don't get the result that they want. This can be seen recently in the Treaty of Lisbon, uh, in the Treaty of Nice. When they don't get the result that they want, they will typically try to hold another referendum until they get the vote that they do want. And in the interim between the two votes, put pressure on the country that didn't vote the way they wanted and try to force them into doing so. They have been effective in doing this in the past. There's no doubt that they will try it again. What I want to talk about are some of the tactics that they'll be using. Now, 
Americans don't think of world politics in terms of geography because we don't have to. We have no neighbors to our east or our west as we have the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans that protect us. To our north, there is Canada. And no offense to my Canadian listeners, but it's hardly a country compared to the United States. There are fewer people in all of Canada as there are in California, just one of our 50 states. We don't think much about Canada because there isn't much to think about given how few people there are, as well as the historical peaceful nature of the country. To our south, there's Mexico. This situation is very different because of issues with illegal immigration. In my opinion, this issue could be addressed with the elimination of the with the minimum with In my opinion, this issue could be addressed with the elimination of the minimum wage and ending the government's war on drugs. Maybe next decade. That said, when we think of world politics, we don't think of Mexico, we think of one issue. I'm not saying this to slag off Canada and Mexico. I'm just showing why Americans don't think about world politics in terms of geography. We don't because we don't have to. But Europe is exactly the opposite. Geography is a crucial factor in politics. For your benefit, just in case you're not aware of the topology of Europe and where everybody is situated, I included a high-resolution link to a map of, of Europe in the replay notes, or you could just pull it up on Google Maps yourself. What you can see is there is another country. It's, it appears that the United Kingdom is the westernmost nation in Europe, but that's not true. Ireland is. And this is where, I, like I said before, there's going to be a very sick and cruel game of chess that the EU is going to play. And this is where I get the concept of the trapped bishop and the second Belfast Blitz. First, the Belfast Blitz, the first and only one so far, happened during World War II. The German Air Force uh, understood that Belfast was one of the worst regions, uh, was one of the most poorly protected regions of the United Kingdom from an air assault. They had very little to protect themselves in terms of anti-aircraft. They had very little uh, shelters. They had very few shelters. It was quite easy for them to decimate the city, and so they did. They destroyed nearly 50% of the housing in Belfast. It was a complete disaster, and it cut off uh, a lot of the manufacturing that Northern Ireland was doing for England in the war. Uh, this was a complete success in, in terms of Germany's uh, ability to decimate the city. There will be a second Belfast Blitz, but it will not be done with an air force. The trapped bishop, commonly known as the Noah's Ark trap, is something that happens in the Rui Lopez and the Sicilian defense chess openings. This is where the White King's bishop is trapped on B3 by an echelon right formation of black pawns. In the coming game of chess that the EU will play against the United Kingdom, the White Bishop is Ireland. More on the echelon of black pawns in a second. Something needs 
also that you need to know about what is going to happen in the near future in the EU is a complete change in border policy. There was recently a document uh, that was released and attributed to France and Germany regarding the future of the EU. This was, uh, I'll link to the document, and this was under the section on common European asylum and migration policy. I'll read from it. Large-scale migration towards Europe will be the key challenge for Europe's future. There shall be no unilateral national answers to the migration challenge, which is a truly European challenge of the 21st century. Our citizens expect that we firmly regain control on our external borders while preserving European values. We have to jointly act to live up to this expectation. Germany and France are convinced that it is high time to work towards establishing truly integrated European asylum, refugee, and migration policy. Given the urgency of this matter, we should not rule out the possibility of a group of member states that share a sense of common responsibility making progress on common policies. Securing our external border is no longer exclusively a national task but also a common responsibility. We are determined that the EU should establish the world's first multinational border and coast guard. Now, you might wonder how this will possibly affect the United Kingdom, as it's essentially a series of islands that don't share a border with the European Union, but that's not entirely true. There is indeed a border between the United Kingdom and a European member state, and that is the border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is a part of the UK. This is a, this is a well, it is an international border, and it is an international border that is unlike any other. The border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland makes the border between the US and Canada look like Checkpoint Charlie. As a matter of fact, when you travel, even by road, from, the, from Northern Ireland into the Republic of Ireland, there's often not even a sign that tells you that you've crossed over into a different country. Oftentimes, the only way that you can actually tell that you've gone from one country into the other is that they've gone from using metric to English measurements on speed limit signs. This completely open border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland came after hundreds of years of violent confrontation between Ireland and the UK, most of which was during the time when Ireland was actually a part of the UK. There were troubles in the 19, well, the, literally the troubles of the 1970s where there was more border security, but that has all since gone. They have a completely open border with no issues and tens of thousands of people going back and forth between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland for work or study. This is all about to change, or is it? I just read to you what France and Germany said that they were going to do, and it will happen. There will be a single border across many countries that is controlled and administered by the European Union. That means that the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland is now the responsibility, at least once you get one foot into, into uh, the Republic of Ireland, that is now the responsibility, not of the Republic of Ireland, 
but of the EU. Now, there's some people who are suggesting that there's going to be some sort of, you know, actual, you know, and that document that I just read you from would also lead you to believe that there's going to be some sort of something that's going to be set up by the EU on that border. I think the exact opposite is going to happen. And this is my concept of the trap bishop and the second Belfast Blitz. The EU is angry right now. They are really, really angry at the UK. And they're also still kind of angry with Ireland. It was not long ago where Ireland was the country that was the only, uh, the only country that was uh, not going along with the Treaty of Lisbon. And the EU has a long memory. How dare they dissent? They didn't forget about this. The EU also knows that nobody is going to depend on free and fluid trade between the UK and Ireland than Ireland. They need it. Right now, Ireland is very concerned, and they well should be. The channels between Ireland and the UK include trade, uh, both merchandise and services, foreign direct investments, energy, migration, and the labor market. Ireland needs a favorable trade deal with the UK. Not having good trade with, with Great Britain will leave the agricultural sector crippled since the UK accounts for over half of Irish meat exports and nearly a third of dairy exports. In a worst-case scenario with the UK outside of the EU, the impact could be 20% or more, and given that more than 15% of Irish exports are destined for the UK, would have a significant, significant impact on total trade volumes. The impact would be particularly damaging for sectors that export disproportionately to the UK, such as the food and beverages sector. Ireland is also very dependent upon imports from the UK. As new supply channels will need to develop, any increase in trade barriers is likely to result in an increase in prices. This would have a negative impact on competitiveness that would impact on the wider economy in Ireland. Northern Ireland is also worried. In an article, which I'll link in the description, um, here's what they said. Northern Ireland, a part of the United Kingdom, is at risk from a move that the majority of people did not vote for. And by that, they mean a majority of people in Northern Ireland. Um, Scotland also had a majority of people that weren't for this, and Northern Ireland was with them. All the rest of you know, England, Wales, et cetera, et cetera, they were for it. Anyway, 56% of citizens in Northern Ireland voted in the, refer in the referendum to stay in the EU. The region will lose free trade with its southern neighbor and funding from the rest of the EU. Martina Anderson, member of the EU Parliament from the Sinn Féin party, said, quote, the North is going to be seen as the ugly duckling on the dance floor, adding that a key reason investors were drawn to Belfast in the past two decades was access to the 500 million customers in Europe. It's as if nobody wants to dance with us, nobody wants to partner with us, because there is that uncertainty with the direction of travel that the British government wants to take. You know, she's not entirely wrong. While I do believe that the decision to leave the EU is wholly beneficial to the UK, I do see some problems for Northern Ireland in specific, particularly over the next few years. What I think that the EU is going to do is, like I said, they're not going to launch an air raid on Belfast, 
But what I do think they're going to do to the Republic of Ireland, not Northern Ireland, is I think they are going to drastically open the floodgates of Muslim refugees and migrants coming in to Ireland. If you do a Google search for news that has come out regarding relations between the Muslim community and Ireland and the rest of the population as a whole, ever since Brexit, there has been this huge shift in the news being good and friendly and all these great things happening. I'm not saying that they're not. I'm saying that all of these articles suddenly appeared immediately after Brexit. And this is all happening, of course, in mainstream media. I think this is a flag that needs to be looked at in the context of the EU's greater plans for this tiny nation. They are going to flood it. And then what about the border, the one that the EU is now in charge of? I don't think they're going to build anything. I don't think they're going to do anything about it. This is the only border that they have access to with the United Kingdom. And they are going, just as the, just as the German Air Force used bombs in World War II against Belfast, I believe that there will be a concerted effort from the EU to place migrants and refugees into Ireland. And those refugees, no doubt, due to that completely unprotected border, will find their way into the UK, that is Northern Ireland. And I think this is how the second Belfast Blitz will begin. The current state of the relationship between the UK and the Republic of Ireland is better than it has ever been, both in the existence of the two, of the two nation states being separate sovereign countries and in a very bloody past when they were all part of the United Kingdom. Things have never been better. However, the wounds are still not that old. There are still people alive today that remember the troubles that happened in the 1970s. The EU stands the most to gain to put pressure on both of these countries by combining a policy of not allowing Ireland to have favorable trade relations with the UK and in stuffing as many migrants and refugees into Ireland as it possibly can. This will open up many old wounds. Ireland will be in a very difficult position. Right now, they don't have a huge problem with Muslim migration because the percentage is very small. Again, as I covered last week, as long as the population in the country is less than 1% Muslim, you don't see many problems. The EU will seek to make some problems by jacking up that population as quickly as can as, as they can. This influx of new good press regarding Ireland and its Muslim population is an opening salvo to suggest that they will pressure Ireland into accepting these refugees. Otherwise, they'll call you racist. I don't know that it actually matters much what the public perception of Ireland is, they are going to have to deal with a problem and it is something that is largely out of their control. The UK, on the other hand, will now have a problem with an unsecured border. The EU isn't going to do anything about it. Now they are going to be the ones who are going to have to face the prospect of building a border that they worked for hundreds of years to take down. The Belfast Blitz during World War II took very little time and had instant and devastating effects. That said, 
the long-term sovereignty of the culture was unchanged. The second Belfast Blitz will be very different. It's going to be very slow, and the penetration will be deep and hard. The EU doesn't really care about Ireland, but they know that the UK and Ireland care very much about each other. They will do as much as possible to make this relationship a belligerent one. Now I'd like to talk about the comments made today by FBI Director James Comey during a press conference regarding the Hillary Clinton email scandal. I watched it live, and for the first 10 minutes, I said, oh my God, he's going to do it. They're going to throw the book at her. He systematically laid out in a manner that is soundbite by soundbite, addressing all of the things that Clinton has said publicly regarding her actions in the email scandal and proved them all to be lies. He then went and broke down how these actions were clearly illegal. There was no question in my mind at this point, at least for the first 10 minutes, he eviscerated her for the first 10 minutes of that press conference. And I thought, well, this is it. I can't believe it. They're actually going to do it. They're actually going to recommend that the DOJ pursue charges against her and proceed with a grand jury and everything else. Uh, of course, I knew that Loretta Lynch would never do that, and this would be halted in its tracks, but it looked like that's the way it was going. But then he decided to just about face and completely change the entire tone of the press conference, instead saying that no reasonable prosecutor would pursue these charges. I think there's a lot going on here. I really think he wanted to be as honest in the closing five minutes of the press conference as he was in the first 10. I think he does believe that Hillary Clinton should be held liable and accountable for all of the felonies that he clearly laid out that she clearly committed. I think it's pretty obvious what's going on here. His hands are tied. He's the director of the FBI, but keep in mind, he has a boss in the FBI. He can't just do whatever he wants. I think those first 10 minutes of the, of the press conference where he completely skewered Hillary, I really don't think that anybody knew he was going to do that except him. I think he was given an order and he followed that order, but he also painted quite a picture. He did it, I believe, in a way that he knew that his comments could be so easily crafted into a devastating 30-second attack ad against Hillary Clinton by the Trump campaign. And in fact, the Trump campaign doesn't even have to do that. There are so many people on YouTube and, you know, even Reason TV, I think, did the best one I've seen so far, where they just go in about 30 seconds and show Hillary Clinton saying something and then showing Comey saying that it was the exact opposite and she lied about it. All, you know, Trump doesn't even have to make anything. They've, it's already been done for him. He can just run those whenever he wants. It was brutal. And then suddenly she was let off the hook. It's pretty clear what was going on here. The fix was in, and a lot of people are saying that this guy has no integrity. I think he did as much as he could. There has never been in the history of this country 
an instance of the director of the FBI completely destroying not just a person who's a candidate for president, but somebody who is already in the Oval Office for the better part of a decade. It was brutal. I don't think he could have done anything else. I think he did as much as he could. Initially, I was really mad at the guy. And now I'm seeing this is the best that he could have done. One picture that he painted expertly is by laying out how literally in other situations, other people would have been held accountable for these actions, but not this one. Or I should say, not this person. He pretty much said that if anyone else had done things like this, and there's scores of people that have done far less and been gotten into 100% more trouble than Hillary. He is basically saying that the reason why there will be no charges filed or there is, there is no recommendation for any further investigation is because this woman's name is Hillary Clinton. Any person with any other name that did not end in Clinton would have been up Schitt's Creek. How will this affect the American voters? They won't affect Democratic voters at all. At this point, they're at the point where they're holding their thumbs inside their ears and just saying, woman president, woman president, woman president, and, and ignoring everything else. Because if you were to do as much as, as open a newspaper, even a mainstream newspaper, this woman is a horrible monster. Everyone knows it. Anyone who is denying this is going through a, just a, a, a complete mental breakdown of cognitive dissonance. Anyone who looks into her at all knows what an evil, evil soul she is. So it won't affect 95% of Democrats. They're not going anywhere. They're voting for Hillary. Maybe 5% who are Bernie supporters will be so disgusted by this, along with everything else, that maybe this will be the last straw. I don't know. Will it have a difference on independent voters? I think so. And these are the ones that you really need to win an election. It all really depends on how Donald Trump spins this, and he's pretty good at that sort of thing. I do think this will be significant over time, though I don't think you're going to see any salvos fired until after the Democratic convention, perhaps even after the, the Republican one. But he's going to lay into her on this, and as well he should. Everyone knows she just got away with murder again. I really thank you all for listening, and uh, I'll see you next week, all right? Cheers.